Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues of the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. Welcome back or welcome to What on Earth, the monthly business discussion on Australia's transition to net zero and post-carbon and what it is that we need to know and understand about the broader strategic issues that we are and we will impact our business. My name is James Scotland. And with me once again to help me unpack these issues is Tenet Reid, the Head of National Policy for Environment and Energy for the Australian Industry Group and a respected international voice on these issues. Hello, Tenet. Welcome. G'day, James. Great to be back. Yeah. Welcome to the new year. Hey, uh, sadly, our third amigo, Paul Hodson, is not unable to join us this month. So it's just me and you. Are you ready to carry the load? I will do my best. They're big shoes to uh, to fill. They sure are. Hey, um, we've got an announcement to make, everyone. Uh, this is episode 30 of What on Earth. Over the Christmas break, we had, did a strategic review uh, and we've decided to put the podcast on hold for the moment. We've covered all the issues many times. We are, we've worked hard at bringing you up to date with what's going on. Uh, and so for now, we're going to put a hold on the issues and come back, uh, put a hold on the, on the podcast and come back when the, the issues have developed a bit more. It's a bit sad. I tend to really enjoy our monthly chats. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's, it's always good fun to break down what's been going on and, and what's coming up next. Um, but, you know, we'll, um, we'll make the most of the last hurrah. <laughs> exactly right. And the good news is that uh, there will, next month there will be a brand new podcast uh, where we will be looking at much uh, all of the broad issues to do with industry development and policy, not just energy and environment. So uh, there's a big challenge on my plate. Um, and I've got to say, it's been uh, a delight chatting with you. I'm looking forward to uh, to this episode. So you're back from holidays. We Before Christmas, you went to uh, COP, uh, the, the Conference of Parties, uh, and then you had a Christmas break. Did you get a chance? I want to talk about COP, but did you get a chance to have a nice break? I did. Uh, there was an enormous flurry of uh, climate and energy-related releases and uh, major reports at the end of last year, uh, and so things really were were busy right up until um, Christmas Eve. Uh, but I had a, a, a lovely break, did uh, little things around Melbourne, saw the Triennial uh, exhibition at the NGV, which has got some, if anybody gets the chance, some incredible artworks by young and emerging uh, artists uh, and uh, organised a bunch of home upgrades, including finally replacing our clanking 20-year-old gas water heater, uh, which is going to be replaced next week with a high-end heat pump. Um, So... I will no longer worry every time I walk past the water heater uh, that this is going to be the moment when it, it finally explodes. You won't have the water heater talking to you every time you walk past it, making gurgling sounds. No, no. Uh, I think uh, a regular hum from the compressor unit rather than uh, intermittent groaning and creaking noises from the old, <laughs> old, old... <laughs> Uh, storage unit of the uh, the current one. Well, I had a good break. Uh, as you know, I live on the, the Gold Coast in Queensland, uh, and I stayed at a, a beautiful house a friend of mine's up in the hills. And on Christmas night, there was a apocalyptic weather storm that took out electricity for five days. So we were back to old school, no electricity for for several days, um, and uh, it reminds us wow. of how. How dependent we are on infrastructure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's uh, let's get up since. Well, yeah. and and one of the things that uh, people can can sensibly be cautious about with the push for electrification of so much in the home, um, which has got you know plenty of good arguments for it, but it does mean that you're sort of all in on one piece of infrastructure. If you do have an interruption of power to your house you may be in trouble. 
Now, there are ways around that and uh, the integration of energy storage into homes um, or, or cars and the ability to, to run appliances off your car, those are things that, that would greatly reduce that vulnerability to uh, if the lights go out, maybe you can't do anything. Um, but it's something, it's something to think about when you do your home upgrade. Just do, do you, are you building some resilience in along the way? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. One was uh, I got a, I heard a lady calling out, and I went outside, and it was the next door neighbour, young a young woman, a young mum, uh, and uh, her husband was out, but she couldn't she couldn't leave the property because it was an electric gate, <laughs> and she, she couldn't figure out how to open an electric gate. So the uh, you know this whole issue just kept piling on top of each other. But on the other side, we yep. heard a lot of stories, a lot of stories of how people were using their electric vehicles to to provide power. That there was enough uh, energy mm. in the vehicles to to run the the key bits of the house. So uh, renewable energy uh, and stored energy is going to be the thing of the future, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, and one thing that I was doing over the the holidays was keeping an eye on the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, which I. I I did not visit, but uh, I read some of the news coming out of it, and uh, there was a uh, an induction cooktop uh, launched there uh, by a uh, little San Francisco-based startup whose big thing is integrated battery storage in the cooktop, three kilowatt hours of storage, uh, and the oh, main wow. purpose of that storage is so that you don't need a major electrical upgrade to the kitchen to put the stove in uh, because uh, it can charge the battery uh, at a um, moderate power draw um, and then discharge that battery at very high power levels when the stove is actually running. Um, But the result of that kind of thing, should that catch on, uh, would be uh, potentially another bit of uh, of resilience for homes uh, in terms of their their integrated battery storage and and maybe um some added resilience to the wider grid too although i don't know i don't know how willing people will be to um sign up their stove to to feed back to the grid if that might mean that they um they can't boil an egg when they really really feel like an egg no, but maybe the battery power might uh, solve the problem with the fridges. Uh, you know, Queensland's a pretty hot, uh, hot state, yep, and yep, uh, five days without without any power to a fridge can cost thousands of dollars. Uh, interestingly, yes. the the person who owned the house, my mate who owns the house, uh, had a six burner gas uh, stove and oven in his kitchen, big kitchen, big stainless steel modern kitchen, and he replaced it with an induction stove of the same size. And I said to him, <laughs> I thought you were a gas man through and through. He said, the induction ones are better. I was better than gas. And he said, yep, they're better. Yep. For a chef, they're better. I could not believe that. I was amazed. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, well, what have you been doing since you got back to work, by the way? Uh, has, it, has it started at 100 miles an hour? There's a lot going on. Uh, so the, uh, the draft of the 2024 integrated system plan, the big uh, energy market operator uh, guiding a vision for how to efficiently develop the electricity system over the next few decades, that came out late last year and a lot of people want to talk about it this year. And uh, as we record, um, just last week, the Treasury put out the exposure draft of legislation for what's called climate-related financial disclosures, mandatory disclosures. And should this pass, and I think it likely will pass, this will be the Australian version of what's uh, an international movement to uh, require large companies to, alongside the other financial disclosures that they have to make to uh, shareholders and, and the wider market, disclose uh, their exposure to climate risks and the impact of uh, local and global climate responses on their businesses. Uh, So, you know, not just um, will uh, my business be vulnerable to changes in extreme weather or, or whatever, but will my business still have a market if global demand for coal or gas uh, 
decreases in line with scenarios for 1.5 degrees. Um, so th that that's uh, legislation that uh, the obligations are very familiar to some businesses who are already reporting along these lines, already under pressure uh, for years from their uh, shareholders yeah, and I investors. Was, I was going to say, isn't that just the ESG reporting that most large businesses have to do anyway to their to their shareholders? So some or of to them their board do. to the board uh, probably yeah. Yeah, there's, um, there is a cohort of uh, businesses in resources or energy or uh, high energy intensity materials production who will have been doing this or something like it for several years most likely. Mm -hmm. Then there's a lot of others who are, who are large businesses who, who maybe haven't uh, done exactly this. They will have had an ESG component to their work, but they won't have done full reporting consistent with uh, the International um, Sustainability Standards Board's uh, work. And so this is going to be a new world for them. And then as this legislation phases in, ultimately it will impact more sort of upper medium-sized businesses, businesses with uh, maybe $50 million in assets or 100 employees uh, or, um, you know, businesses that are large enough to be doing financial reporting already uh, but maybe haven't had a, a huge amount of exposure to climate scenarios, uh, to scope three emissions issues. And so assuming it passes in the form that it's roughly in and it links up to an Australian accounting standards board, um, accounting standards out for consultation at the moment, I think there's a lot of skilling up for a wider cohort. Like um, I've heard estimates that ultimately 20,000 Australian businesses uh, might be reporting under this legislation by late this decade. Uh, and so uh, that's that's a lot to get up to speed with. And there's questions about, well, is there scope for amending this legislation? Uh, for instance, it's it's currently set to commence obligations for the uh, the very biggest businesses on one July this year. There may not be a lot of daylight between this legislation passing and the uh, the standard being finalised and that obligation commencing. So, uh, arguably, pushing it back uh, by six months to a year would make a lot of sense. I, I, I'm, I'm still a little confused as to what this reporting will achieve. Yeah, so um, the main thing that advocates, uh, the main things that advocates want from it is uh, to ensure that investors are well informed and they have a, a, a clear uh, line of sight to the the risks that face uh, businesses that they might invest in, uh, so that there is no systemic financial instability uh, in light of the impacts that physical climate change and climate uh, responses uh, might have. You know, you you could imagine a scenario where these risks aren't monitored and there's a huge uh, correction to the valuations of, uh, say, um, oil and gas and coal businesses uh, that play an important role in uh, the portfolios of a lot of investors uh, and a bunch of investors uh, suddenly realise that um, they don't actually have the money to pay out the pension obligations that they've got or, or, or whatever. So, you know, that's that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is that you, um, you don't manage what you don't measure and in uh, getting a broader range of businesses to look at what their exposure is uh, to the physical and the um, response issues around climate that will get a higher quality of climate response from a wider range of businesses. And like to me, both of those seem like reasonable ideas, but as always, nothing is such a good idea that you can't muck it up in practice. And so <laughs> implementing this carefully uh, and, and, you know, ensuring that there is the capacity there for 
businesses to draw on in getting advice on how to respond, how to do these reports, and that's pretty important. Yeah, it makes sense that uh, we need to say to companies, think about what's going on in this area. Think about where you're sitting strategically and what your risks are. The fear would be that, uh, like it happened in, um, in Europe with some of the climate reporting, they discovered the businesses got good at reporting rather than good at fixing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, we have strict financial reporting rules and laws uh, already and you, you, you still find uh, that, that some, uh, some businesses occasionally um, stretch the truth or uh, uh, wind up um, giving a rosier version of circumstances uh, than they should. And, uh, and often they are, they are found in that case to have violated the standards or violated the law. And so, you know, th- this is not going to be a cure-all. Um, it seems like a, for, for some businesses at least a, a, a reasonable and useful step. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you do want to ensure with uh, that businesses can do their core business. Uh, and that the uh, level of of compliance and red tape that they um, experience is proportionate to the the value of the issues being and and, and significance of the issues being reported on. And for some businesses, um, climate related stuff actually is hugely significant to the prospects and the value of the business. And for some of them, it's going to be very marginal. Um, and so the materiality elements of uh, this reporting are, are, are going to be very important. If the, if the materiality thresholds work and you, you can just give short answers essentially um, to uh, issues that have no material impact on, on the business, then that'll be okay. And if instead you need to write war and peace on matters that don't have actually any material impact on investors, then that will be a big waste of people's time and effort. I think that everyone involved is trying to get that balance right. Uh, The Treasury is having a go at that. The Australian Accounting Standards Board is having a go at that. Uh, And uh, there are businesses doing these reports uh, already who feel fine about it. but. we, we will have to see how the implementation for a wider cohort actually goes. Yeah, there's a, a sort of, a, it reminds me of the modern day slavery reporting where, you know, most businesses, all, resp- all responsible businesses say, yeah, we don't want to be involved in our supply chains, uh, having modern day slavery aspects to it. Yet reporting on it and assessing it is, is quite difficult at times. So there's this balance between yeah. what we're trying to do and what, what we're able to report. Well, you've got a busy year ahead by the sound of it. That's going to, that and many other issues are going to keep you uh, on your toes. Um, yeah. Let's go back. <laughs> yeah, let's go back, oh, way back, way, way back, so eight weeks <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to COP, <laughs> if you can remember that. Now, the headlines of the, 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 uh, the UN climate change meeting, uh, which is in Dubai, uh, was that it was not going anywhere and there was a whole lot of trouble going on. And then all of a sudden, in the last few days, it all came together and there were some good outcomes. So let's talk about uh, the outcomes in a minute. But first off, um, just you were there. What, what happened? Was it, was it a good couple of weeks or you know, was it frustrating? Tell me, so, tell, give us the overview. Uh, I find these uh, UN climate conferences always to be absolutely fascinating there's uh, always incredible people uh, there, like just such a diversity of business people, scientists, policymakers, campaigners uh, from from you know two hundred countries, just about. Uh, and there's the negotiations, there's the uh, the updates and the presentations and panels that different uh, people are, are running to explain what is going on in every sector, every uh, aspect of, of climate change. So uh, it is incredible. And this one was like physically the biggest COP ever. Uh, there were said to be 100,000 
individual um, visitors to the secure part of the cop over the fortnight. Everything's uh, bigger and better in Dubai, though, isn't it? It's huge. Uh, it's a strange place. It was my first time there, uh, and uh, you know, riding the the metro uh, from the airport to the cop, uh, which were like from one end of the metro to the other. Uh, you know, you would pass by uh, the uh, Burj uh, Khalifa, the the still the tallest yeah, building yeah. in the world, and all these amazing uh, skyscrapers planted in in what was recently uh, desert. You'd pass by buildings. You'd, you'd pass by malls with indoor ski slopes, uh, the biggest shopping malls in the world. You'd pass by uh, gas uh, facilities with uh, flares of uh, flaming gas uh, coming out of them uh, in the, the middle of the day. Uh, you'd go from, and then when you got to the to the meeting, that was bigger and better than uh, than ever. Gigantic! They they had uh, packed out the entirety of the World Expo 2020 site, and it was enormous. Uh, and I have to say, logistically, uh, Dubai did an incredible job. Uh, like, yes, it was the the biggest visitor numbers ever. But they managed the lines well. They kept everybody fed and watered. Uh, they had great facilities, uh, and it, it just it hummed as a logistical enterprise. As a negotiation, well, these things are always difficult. And why do you the, think it was so it, popular? Why was it so big? So I think that Dubai uh, wanted it to be very big. They wanted to showcase Dubai to the world. Uh, I think also, though, um, there has been a trend of these events growing since, uh, well, I mean, they, they've been growing for a long time, but particularly since the Paris Agreement was struck, uh, you know, before Paris, the negotiations themselves dominated and the issue was, you know, would, what were the rules that countries would agree to? Well, we got at Paris and then cemented over the next couple of years after Paris, we got the rules. And the system that was constructed at Paris is one where the international meetings take on a, a new role of countries revving each other up to voluntarily commit to do more and to build their, their trust and confidence in each other by showing off what they are doing to make good on their previous pledges. And so in a way, uh, the, um, the sideshow has become the main event. Uh, the, uh, the work that nations are doing at home and, and you know, all manner of businesses and campaigners and stakeholders are, are, are doing uh, is now... Uh, at, at, at as important as the negotiations, I would say. Uh, and this year, um, one of the biggest things on the agenda in the negotiations was uh, really aimed, it was the global stock take, the how are we doing against the goals of the Paris Agreement and what have we got to do next? I mean, that was really about influencing uh, the decisions that countries make at home, not at COP, over the next year or so on their next round of commitments. And the, yeah. uh, the side events and the, the 100,000 people, they're trying to influence those outcomes at home too. I was going to ask you about the global stock take because that was the highlight prior to COP. That's what people were talking about, that we're going to do the global stock take or we'll get an update on the global stock yep. take, which is about how individual companies are performing against what they, their commitments were, if I understand it. What happened? Did, uh, was it reported? Was it fixed? Well, so it's a little bit about, it's a little bit about individual performance, but it, it's more if we sum up everything that countries have committed to and done uh, on both reducing emissions, on adapting to climate change, and on providing the finance needed 
uh, for mitigation and adaptation, emissions reduction, and adjusting to increased temperatures, uh, increases of extreme weather. If we sum up everything that countries have done towards that, how adequate is it versus the overarching goals of the Paris Agreement, which are to keep anthropogenic climate change, human-caused climate change to well below 2 degrees and, and make efforts to keep it below 1.5 degrees uh, to adapt to uh, the climate change that's left and to provide adequate finance. How are we doing? And collectively, you know, everybody knew going in. The answer was, well, a lot has happened, but it's not enough. We're not yet on track to stay below uh, 2 degrees. Uh, let alone 1.5 degrees, uh, we're not doing enough to adapt to the level of global warming that that exposes us to, and uh, finance is, is, is inadequate for a, a whole lot of uh, poorer countries that either can't borrow or pay a, a much higher uh, cost of capital to borrow uh, than uh, developed countries do. So how are we going to thread all those needles? was, you know, I mean, that, that's a huge question, but what will countries agree to say about that? And then what kind of impetus will they give themselves and each other in the process that they need to do? So in, in 2025, everybody needs to submit that new nationally determined contributions. They're self-determined, not negotiated um, commitments for what they're going to do through to 2035, following on from the current commitments to 2030, they've got to submit those, what is now next year, at the COP, uh, in the lead up to the COP that's going to be held in Brazil. But the work for that is going to be done this year, 2024. And so what kind of kick up the pants were countries going to give themselves ahead of that process was the, the, the big question hanging over COP28 Dubai. What you would like, what I'd like to hear, what I guess everyone would like to hear is that there was a whole bunch of, you know, 150 company, countries were saying, yeah, we're on track, we're ahead of track, we've got our plans in place, it's all going well. And then there's 25 or 45 uh, countries that were saying, okay, we've got to lift our game. I gather that's not the case, that pretty much everybody said, no, we have to lift our game, we're all, we're all laggards. Yeah, so... The issue is not so much that countries aren't delivering what they committed. I mean, for the most part, they are. Um, the issue is that the commitments themselves are not enough. Uh, so oh, right. the, yeah. the, the yeah. sum of everybody's commitments to 2030 um, would be consistent with probably something like um, 2.5 to 2.8 degrees of global warming. Maybe some, some might say three degrees. Uh, now, the, the commitments that people have made about 2050, 60, 70, the net zero commitments that countries made in the lead up to Glasgow, uh, those are important. Those are, are hazier commitments at this point than the 2030 targets. Um, but if you incorporate those, then maybe we're more like on course for two point two degrees of global warming, maybe less. Um, but we've got a gap between where those commitments are. And then, of course, any commitments that are made have got to be credible. There's got to be um, plans to achieve them and policies to achieve them and money to achieve them. Um, but the, the negotiations, are they were a lot more complex, sadly, than... Um, uh, most of us are doing the right thing and, and, and a couple of us are laggards because there, there was an also, also a lot of, um, oh, well, you first coming from uh, a significant number of countries. That one's been around since Rio, hasn't it? It's been around forever. Yes. Uh, it's sort of like, uh, congratulations, you've lost two kilos, but you're going to have to lose 20, you know, like this. It's okay, you're doing good, but it's not good, anywhere near good enough. Everyone listening would be wondering, what does this mean? To stretch a metaphor, <laughs> okay. some of it was like, um, uh, I, want, I want you to lose 50 kilos so that I can put on 25, uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense in a dietary sense. And frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense in uh, the climate context either. 
but there there was a view put i mean we can we could talk for like several hours about the the nitty gritty of the negotiations, but you've got uh many blocks of countries within the the sort of nearly two hundred who participate and a view from i think pretty much every developed country and some others besides was look everybody's got to do more everybody's got to contribute to uh getting emissions down to where they need to be a view from some of the bolshier developing countries was you developed countries need to not just cut earlier and and faster uh, but you need to go net negative emissions so that developing countries can expand their use of fossil fuels, uh, can have room for development. Uh, and uh, that, that was like a, a firmly put view from, uh, from Bolivia, who you know, you'd usually say, well, who cares about Bolivia? But Bolivia is a, an influential spokesperson in these negotiations for the like-minded developing country bloc, which includes China, India, Saudi Arabia, and and a number of others, uh, they were they were like really firm on no, nope, you need to go super hard and fast, rich countries, and uh, we will follow later, if ever. Um, now, other developing countries had a very different view. This issue of uh, a logical argument uh, versus a pragmatic argument. Uh, Yes, that might make sense, but it's not just not going to happen. We're just not going to go down. We're not going to be able to achieve that. I think everyone listening would be saying, though, Tina, what's it mean for Australia? Where was Australia in all of this and, and, and what's, what are the implications for us? So Australia was really active in these negotiations. I mean, we, we have been for a long time, uh, but particularly this year, uh, Australia chairs a negotiating block uh, called the Umbrella Group. Uh, which is basically uh, all of the non-European Union advanced economies. Uh, and uh, Chris Bowen, uh, the Energy and Climate Minister, was uh, very active uh, in the negotiations. I saw him speak uh, quite um, powerfully in uh, some of the, the highest profile uh, meetings, including an epic one that went one night from um, uh, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. or thereabouts. Uh, I was taking a lot of notes through that meeting. Uh, Australia was pushing the developed country view uh, that we do need to push for one and a half degrees. We do need to achieve very deep global reductions in emissions over the next uh, 11 years. Uh, and the the views that he put, the outcome that Australia got uh, does put a lot of pressure on us to walk the walk. And so Australia is thinking this year about what's our 2035 emissions commitment, our target for 2035. We're also developing sector plans for, uh, for industry, for resources, for transport, for the built environment, for agriculture. Uh, and uh, for energy, and it's pretty hard to escape the conclusion based on the global outcome we push for and the things that Australia said in the process of pushing for it, that those plans are going to have to be pretty darn ambitious, uh, that they're going to have to involve some big numbers for emissions reductions. I think the 43% national emissions target uh, for uh, 2030 that we currently have, I think that's going to remain as is. It's, it's hard for uh, an all new target and all new commitments starting to development now in early 2024 to produce much difference in 2030 beyond what's already in train. Uh, but 2035 is up for grabs, and so uh, I think uh, I think we can expect the safeguard mechanism for those companies who are um, covered by it, very large emitting facilities. Uh, that is, of course, going to keep evolving and get tougher uh, through 2035. 
Uh, this seems very obvious. Maybe it will expand to more businesses, um, but it will certainly keep ramping up. Uh, I think that the fuel emissions uh, or fuel efficiency standard for light vehicles that's currently under development, that's going to be an important thing. Um, the the uh, inertia in our vehicle fleet is is large. They, you know, vehicles get replaced very slowly. Uh, that standard probably can't make much difference to 2030, but it could make a significant difference to what the makeup of our fleet looks like in 2035. But there's going to be a lot of stuff for every uh, sector. I think there's going to be uh, a, a substantially ramped up emphasis on how do we uh, substitute clean energy for high emissions energy? How do we uh, find ways to uh, substitute high emissions materials with low emissions materials? Uh, what can we do in agriculture and land that we're not already doing? Uh, well, probably uh, really starting to deploy these methane suppressing uh, supplements to livestock. Uh, that's a logistically complicated thing. Uh, but uh, I, I think that um, we're going to have detailed consultations this year and, and for a few years after on the the where and the how we get there, um, but this is gonna this is gonna touch on a lot of businesses in many different sectors. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's not so much a a case of watch this space; it's more of a case of watch out because it's coming at you hard and fast over the next few years. There's going to be some significant conversations and decisions made by businesses and people everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and you know, th there's a um, there's a a worrying side to that for some businesses. Um, is is my market going to go away uh, if I'm making a, a a product or supplying a product that's that's high emissions or is associated with high emissions activities? There's an opportunity side as well, though. I mean, there are going to be a lot of um, new products, new services, new ways of delivering existing products and services needed. Domestically, there's opportunity, but export-wise, like other countries doing what they've asked each other and themselves to do at COP is going to greatly expand the market for Australia's mineral exports uh, in, uh, in lithium, in nickel. I know there's some wobbles uh, going on right now in uh, Australian investors in in nickel and lithium, um, given international competition and the cyclicality of of those sectors, but the long term story is mega trends of expanding demand for a lot of stuff that we can dig and process, uh, and then on the clean energy intensive uh, materials and and uh, products front. Uh, I I saw at COP uh, some terrific. Um, developments from, uh, for instance, uh, ThyssenKrupp, a uh, major steel maker uh, it, with a um, lot of capacity in Germany, uh, they uh, are moving ahead with a uh, hydrogen-based green steel production uh, facility at one of their existing blast furnaces uh, to be producing millions of tonnes a year of green steel uh, by the end of 2027. So there's some big stuff happening and uh, we have some opportunities there. Some big, yeah, businesses, yeah, you've got to grab those opportunities. Never forget that back in the horse and cart days in Australia, the largest carriage maker was a company called Holden that saw the writing on the wall and decided to do a the partnership with General Motors and survive for another 100 years uh, when their current market just evaporated. That's what we're going to learn. It's not the end of the world. It's a matter of just being smart business people. Back to COP, uh, there's a, an interesting question because I know that Australia, I think, put their hand up to host COP in 2026. And uh, Yep. <laughs> My question is, why would the leading LNG exporter in the world, a major coal exporter in the world, a major livestock exporter, how could they possibly put their hand up and say, bring the climate change conference to us? Well, you know, um, we would not stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, 
uh, given that uh, COP28 was hosted in Dubai, which, uh, I mean, Dubai doesn't produce a huge amount of um, oil and gas, but the UAE, of which it is a, a, a part, one of the Emirates that's united, the UAE sure does produce a lot. Uh, and next year, or oh, sorry, uh, this year, uh, now 2024, um, the COP's going to be hosted in Azerbaijan uh, at Baku, which has been a centre of the oil industry for more than a century. We're meeting uh, in amongst all of those oil rigs, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the yeah. lunchroom amongst all those oil rigs, yeah. And then the next one is going to be in Brazil, which, you know, Brazil uh, is an incredible country in, in all kinds of ways. It uh, has uh, played a very important role in um, the environmental debate over the years. They're also a honking big oil producer. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and but for that matter, Poland, the Australia of Europe, has uh, hosted COP three times, uh, despite having the highest coal dependency of, of any uh, country in Europe, as far as I'm aware. So, uh, you know, it, it is no bar to hosting these things uh, if you are significantly involved in the fossil industry. Uh, but why would we want to host it? Well, it is a, uh, it's a major privilege. It does provide an opportunity to uh, help to steer a, a, a process and a debate of incredible significance uh, to our country. Uh, it is a chance to put us more firmly on the map as a uh, not just uh, a big part of the existing uh, fossil energy system, but as a big part of the emerging uh, clean energy system uh, and, and global economy. Uh, and it's a chance to um, strengthen our relationships with our Pacific Island neighbours, family, really, who are uh, very important to Australia in all kinds of ways, but uh, the security relationship with those countries, I think, has mm. been very mm. much in the spotlight in the last year or two as China has uh, sought to um, strengthen its role in the region. Uh, and Pacific Islanders care about a lot of things, uh, but they care about whether their islands still exist or not quite a lot. Yeah, that's uh, a reasonable and, question. Yes. Uh, and so um, working with them and on their behalf to uh, push the global climate negotiations towards uh, you know, success on 1.5 degrees um, is, is a thing that um, it is very helpful for Australia to, for us to try and, and even more helpful for us to succeed. When will the decision be made uh, as to whether or not Australia will be the host and how will it be made? So uh, it's a strange process. I think uh, there was some hope that that was going to be decided uh, last year at COP28. In the event, uh, all of the effort on nailing these uh, hosting issues down had to be devoted to nailing down uh, 2024 because it was Eastern Europe's turn to host in 2024. And you may have noticed there's a little bit of tension within Eastern Europe uh, lately. Uh, to read the Russia master was... of, of understatement again is. <laughs> well, Russia was threatening to veto uh, any potential host that was a member of the European Union. And... European Union totally reasonable human being, totally reasonable oh, as an organisation. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, others did not much like the idea of the COP being hosted in Moscow or Belarus uh, and, you know, trying to find unobjectionable non-EU members. People were thinking, Montenegro? Uh, what could it be? Well, Azerbaijan stuck their hand up. Uh, and um, they they managed to uh, they'd been they'd been having uh, major ructions more than ructions with Armenia uh, last year, uh, but they they managed to sort themselves out and get 
support from our media for the hosting. So what's the process for, ne- for, for the next decision? Well, the hosting duties uh, uh, rotate through regional groupings. Australia is part, uh, for this purpose, of a regional grouping called Western Europe and Others. We are part of the Others. And uh, another of the Others is Turkey, or Turkia, uh, as, as they are now called. Uh, and Turkia is bidding also to host the COP. Uh, and I think Australia's chances are good, but there needs to be a, a consensus within the Western Europe and Others grouping. So uh, I do expect that that will be sorted out in the lead up to, uh, like substantively sorted out in the lead up to Azerbaijan. But uh, we will see. Turkey is is trying to, you know, they they were clear at the closing plenary of uh, COP twenty eight. We still want it. We're we're making a a a pitch a pitch for it, um, and we'll see how they do. I think Australia's got a got a, a better case to make, um, but of course I would say that <laughs> Australia and Western Europe is that the is that the grouping? Did you say Western Europe and others? Uh, Western so, Europe and others. Uh, yeah, yeah. The US and Canada are part of the others also. So it's an eclectic group. Well, a friend of mine is a travel guide. She travels around the world, you know, on the buses telling people what's going on. And she tells me that there is a desk in uh, the airports in Austria for the people who have arrived at the wrong country. Uh, you were meant to go to Australia. <laughs> there's, actually, there's actually a desk there. Uh, I'll just, <laughs> <laughs> um, we should wrap up on COP, but before we do, the uh, there was a bit of drama in the in the closing plenary. Is is that right? Was it all got exciting at, right at the yeah. end, like it normally does? Well, so yes and no. Um, so the the last few days of the COP were very dramatic because uh, parties seemed to be miles apart. Uh, things seemed very difficult particularly on this global stock take where you know, there's so many issues being disputed inside that. Um, everything from, you know, uh, the developed country position that we needed, uh, not just uh, a strong raising of ambition from everyone, but also a, a global phase out of fossil fuels to be agreed as, as an objective. Uh, and the views from others that not only should there be, there should be no mention of fossil fuels, there should be no mention of renewable energy, uh, and there, in fact, should be no no call on anyone to do anything, uh, because that was too policy prescriptive. Was the view that India was putting uh, on several occasions? Uh, so, you know, how was all this going to be wrapped up? With you had Pacific Islanders saying. Uh, there must be a fossil fuel phase out and any mention of things like carbon capture and storage abating fossil fuels is anathema. Um, and you had you know, Saudi Arabia saying, the problem is not uh, sources of emissions, it's emissions. So don't mention any sources of emissions. How are they going to sort that out? Now, in the end, they did sort it out, but uh, they couldn't get to a form of words that was fully acceptable in, and able to be enthusiastically endorsed by everybody. And one of the things that, they, that was in the final outcome was instead of mentioning a global phase out of fossil fuels or unabated fossil fuels, uh, the call was for a transition away from fossil fuels in energy systems. And a few more words on top of that. And that like substantively was pretty sensible, uh, I would say. Uh, and still, like the first time that fossil fuels, weirdly enough, have ever been mentioned in the actual decisions of a COP. Um, but the Pacific Islands, and not just the Pacific Islands, but the broader alliance of small island states, they couldn't they couldn't accept those words. But they also didn't want to blow up the whole thing. So these, these processes work by consensus. Uh, in theory, uh, one party or a couple of parties can block the adoption of an outcome. That's a big deal to do. 
the Pacific Islands, the uh, Caribbean Islands, they did not want to stop that process. And so this delicate little manoeuvre seems to have been worked out where uh, more or less as soon as the closing plenary was opened, uh, like within five minutes, um, Sultan al-Jabur, the uh, president of the COPs, the, the, the minister from uh, the UAE and the head of the UAE's national oil company, uh, just uh, brought up the global stock take issue for decision, uh, barely even looked around the room and brought down his gavel and said, there being no objections, it is so decided. And the, so the small island states were not in the room <laughs> at that moment. Uh, and they, they subsequently came in and then made this intervention where they said, uh, we're very confused. This decision was adopted, but we were unable to get into the room. Uh, and if we had been in the room, here are the things that we would have said that we objected to. Now, were they actually shut at, Like some people interpreted this to say, oh, my God, small island states were tricked and shut out of the room and prevented from stopping this decision. No, that is not what happened. That would be extraordinary if anything like that happened. And no, no group of parties would put up with that. Uh, but this was a, a delicate dance done so that uh, the decision could be made without those parties having to say that they endorsed that piece of the decision. Fun and games right at the end. The power of the gavel, yeah. the power of the voice. Hey, um, yeah, yeah. we're going to finish up. It's been a great uh, conversation. Thank you for that summary. Back to the idea about um, uh, oil countries uh, hosting the climate change. There was talk that there was a lot of, you know, that the oil executives are taking over, that they're turning up in their thousands. Maybe that's why there were so many people in Dubai because the the, 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 the coal people turned up or the, the, you know, the fossil fuel people turned up. Do you think that's reasonable or what's going on? So uh, I, I did see these claims and uh, an outfit called Kick Big Polluters Out, a uh, very, very, very subtly named organisation. Um, yeah, that's reasonably specific. Yeah. Uh, they put out a, a widely reported uh, press release saying that 2,500 Fossil fuel lobbyists were striding the halls at uh, COP28, and, and this was terrible, and that, that uh, such people should uh, should not be allowed. Uh, I don't think they're right. I don't think they're right in the specifics of, as best as I can see, their number inflates uh, the number of um, employees of fossil businesses or directly fossil related organisations by about four times. Um, but like even 600, 700 people is, is, I guess, quite a few. It's well less than 1% of the attendees. Um, but I think there's a broader problem with this point of view, at least two. One is that it's very hard for anybody to influence the outcomes uh, at these events. Like they are incredibly complex events. Most of the time, most of the negotiators uh, are asking people if they know what's going on. Um, but more broadly, uh, like it's, it's an all inclusive process. Every country is there. If you want a, a, a narrow sort of, uh, a coalition of the willing, I mean, that's fine. That's not the UN. The UN is everybody's in. Uh, and if you start shutting people out, I, I don't know that that does any good for the process. And especially when, like, uh, more than half of the fossil fuel um, attendees were employees of state-owned enterprises, national oil companies of Malaysia or Oman or Mexico or, or others. These countries are not going to forget that they own uh, multi-billion-dollar um, oil or gas businesses. If they can't bring those employees to COP, yeah, uh, it's sort of magical thinking. I think I think you know you, you you're right. You need all players at the table, and particularly these players yeah. that have got got skill sets. You know, they've got some some big skills and big experience in energy. Uh, it's just 
time to change their thinking into new energy. Yeah, absolutely. The rumours will continue to abound, uh, though. Hey, um, we're just about out of time. Uh, it's uh, it's been wonderful chatting with you. What do you think will be the big things for us to look out for over the next 12 months? Uh, we're we're going to take a break from this podcast, but what should the people listening keep an eye out for? And, you know, feel free to mention CBAM. <laughs> well, <laughs> briefly, 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 briefly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will be paying a lot of attention to uh, the development or well, the consideration of a carbon border adjustment mechanism for Australia. But I will freely admit that even if we do adopt one, it will not really much affect almost anybody listening to this podcast. Uh, it will be about a narrow range of products uh, and have fairly gentle effects beyond that. Um, I, th- I think things to watch for, though, uh, over the course of this year, um, the, the consideration of a, um, a national emissions target for 2035 and sector plans for a, a bunch of important sectors towards that target and towards net zero, um, that's going to be big. I think uh, cementing the um, next uh, plan for the development of Australia's electricity systems and also um, considering the, the, the future gas plant. Um, I mean, gas is still an important energy source in Australia. Um, it's going to shrink over time, but uh, it's pretty important to keep that system on a, an even keel in the process of shrinking so the, the future gas strategy that the feds are developing and the specific policies that, say, Victoria is developing to manage gas transition, um, those are going to be pretty important to a bunch of uh, industrial gas users uh, and to businesses that supply uh, appliances to consumers. Uh, and then I think, um, look, another thing that I would keep an eye on, I think it's going to be very important in the climate and energy space, but it's going to be important in a lot of spaces, China's economy and its relationship with um, others, they are shifting from uh, boosting their growth numbers by pumping excess investment into property to boosting their growth growth numbers by pumping excess investment into industry. And there is going to be overcapacity of everything in China, seeking markets around the world. Uh, And so if you're making anything uh, or supplying anything that China supplies, you may have an increasingly uncomfortable time over the next couple of years. If you are buying stuff that is made uh, or will be made in China, you may have, uh, you may see a lot of deflation in the, um, the products that you need. And that stuff is going to play out really interestingly. It could make Australia's ambitions uh, for expanding our production of um, renewable energy components a lot harder to achieve, but it could make our ambitions for expanding cheap generation of renewables easier to achieve if we're comfortable in getting all that stuff from China. So, you know, the global trade relationships See what happens with the U.S. presidential election. Um, global trade may get even even trickier than it is now, uh, but um, lots to watch this year. Absolutely, put China into context. Uh, keep an eye on the U.S. Uh, see what happens in the uh, the uh, geopolitical spectrum. I'm going to be watching the fuel efficiency standards and see what impact that has yep. uh, on electric vehicles coming to Australia. Um, in my other podcast, we're talking to John Grimes from the uh, Smart Energy Council, who was saying that if EVs start picking up quickly, then places like uh, multi-storey apartments that are spread throughout the East Coast, they're going to have to start figuring out how to electrify their basements and their car parks uh, yeah. uh, on, on, at scale. Uh, and so there's business opportunities and, and challenges everywhere. And then there's the gas issue in uh, in Victoria and the southern states are changing from gas to electric. And, of course, we've got the infrastructure uh, problems that we started out with uh, of blackouts and natural disasters. It'll be a year yeah. ahead, no doubt. It's going to be a roller coaster. And I'm looking forward to it. Oh, me too. Me too. I mean, we, we are living in interesting times, that's for, that's for sure. Yeah. 
Thank you, Tenant. Thank you for everything you've done over the, the last uh, 31 episodes. Look forward to catching up with you again soon when we, when we reactivate the What on Earth uh, studios. And uh, if, if ever there's uh, an energy or climate uh, policy topic that uh, the, uh, the, the new podcast uh, needs to cover, you know my number. <laughs> we will give you a call. Uh, it's been great fun. Thank you very much. Thank you to Paul Hudson uh, and thank you to all the people who put together this podcast uh, and we'll talk to you at some stage in the future. See you then.